0: Just a note about a new home for this podcast. Uh, I've been with the Mule Radio Syndicate since I launched the show last November. They've been terrific to work with. It's a great bunch of people, supportive and generous with their time, really helped incubate the show and helped me get it to the state it's in now. But I bought the magazine, as you may recall, an electronic periodical a few months ago, and have been consolidating everything I'm doing under one roof. And so I'm bringing... The podcast over to its own hosting and eventually be pulling some podcasts together for the magazine, and this will be one of them. So, starting August 1st, you'll find the new disruptors at newdisrupt.org. That's newdisrupt.org. Your iTunes feed and other RSS feeds should redirect to the new podcast feed, and for the foreseeable future, you can find archives in both places, but starting with the August 6th podcast, you'll find us exclusively at newdisrupt.org, and I'll be posting some additional blog posts there as well as we move along. As always, I love your feedback about the show, and you can send that to me at nd at newdisrupt.org. Erica Moen is a cartoonist who lives in Portland, Oregon, who has many irons in many fires, as most cartoonists and illustrators must to make a living. She carries out freelance commissions, was a contestant on the web reality show Strip Search, and a few months ago launched Oh Joy Sex Toy, a comic strip about bedroom paraphernalia. And she joins us today. Hello, Erica.
1: Hello.
0: It's really hard to figure out what to talk to you about because you've got so many different and interesting projects, past and present, you've been (laughs) involved with. But maybe we'll start with, uh, you know, how did you get into this gig? Most cartoonists have a story about what kind of obsession led them, often from a young age, into pursuing this as a career.
1: Well, I guess I I never actually saw it as a career until it was kind of thrust upon me in 2008 when we had the Great Recession. Uh, But I mean, before that, Starting from very young age, I was always very, very into comics. Um, my dad had this giant book, uh, a Smithsonian collection of comics from the turn of the century, the Sunday Funnies that started at, at 1900 and then went forward to I think to about like 1950 or so. And there are these gorgeous full color Sunday comics that aired over 50 years. And I, I would pour over those when I was a, a kid, just over and over again. I read that book and. Um, and then you know it got into Archie and Sonic the Hedgehog and then Bone was my I think that was kind of like my my first I, I I feel like it was my first grown-up comic even though it's still an all ages comic but it was still it was my first like not Archie and not Sonic the Hedgehog comic. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um and then from there I've just I've just always been very very um passionate about comics, about consuming them and then When I was a little teenager, I started drawing them, and I started putting my own comics on the internet probably when I was either like 14 or 15 years old, and I just turned 30 uh, just last month, at the end of the month. So I've been putting comics on the internet for literally half of my life.
0: It's funny that you started with the giant collection, too, because I was from the heyday. uh, I had something like that. I don't know if I get them out of the library. And those are the heydays of uh, newspaper cartooning when papers would publish these giant, you know, full-color cartoons. They'd be huge pages of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And then we have the internet. And you can publish things of any size, any shape, any color.
1: Oh, that's so funny. I never thought, like, how it's come kind of full circle again.
0: Well, you look at some of the strips, like, I mean, Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal, I had uh, Zach Wienersmith on a a few episodes ago, Mm -hmm. and he makes, you know, sometimes he does regular panels that are short, and then sometimes he does things that are multiple feet long that you can never do in print even in the the best of times.
1: Yeah, um yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I never thought of how, like, back in the day it was a full page of comics and it would be, like, all crazy layouts. And now today we've got full screens of comics and you can do all crazy layouts. But But
0: you uh, grew up when that was an option. I think that's what's interesting is that you were in a a period of time when uh, you didn't have to make that choice. You weren't necessarily dying to be in print or maybe you would like to be in print. but
1: No, never occurred to me.
0: (laughs) That's so fascinating. Yeah, see, this is that – it's interesting – uh, transition point where print is not seen as necessarily the desirable option because, right, there's so much cost involved to do it yourself. Although I know mm-hmm. you have also done this yourself. You have print collections out, but there's so much cost to start in print and there's, uh, there's so few opportunities and the web is this open playground. And uh, yeah. so, so, but that's interesting. So in your teenage years, you were already posting cartoons to the internet. Did you get a response then? I mean, how did you yeah. reach people?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's why I kept doing is I got positive reinforcement. And so of course I, I want to keep getting positive reinforcement. So I, I just kept doing them and, you know, obviously like I like them and I get something out of them. But you know, when you're, when you're that young and you're looking for validation and then the internet's like, Hey, validate, validate, validate. It's like, <laughs> well, I'm gonna keep doing this, you know? But even though it's, it's funny cause I, I didn't set out intending to be a print cartoonist. like I was just making my comics and posting them on the internet. much like you know people take Instagram pictures or they write their blog posts. To me, that was how I shared on the internet was by doing comics. Um, but that said, I still strongly prefer reading comics in print than I do online because I, I am a fan of a lot of web comics. But I usually wait until their collected book comes out before I actually read them. Um, There's only, I think, like two or three web comics that I read every time they update online. Everybody else, I'm just like, hey, I'm a fan. I love what you do. I'm waiting for the book. (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Who who do you read? Who's are your? I was just. Who's my uh, everyday reader? Well, do I ask you to play favorites if I say which ones? Uh, you know, don't tell me ones you hate. Tell me ones you like.
1: <laughs> uh, well, my most favorite comic is Girls with Slingshots by Danielle Corsetto. Hmm. I it's just it, I feel like she is writing that comic just for me. She's like, what would make Erica laugh? And then she does it, and then I laugh, and she does it every day. It's amazing. And then I read PVP every day. And um, no, and these ones aren't everyday updaters, but Family Man by Dylan McConis. Uh, you can read it at lutheralevy.com. and I read Cardigan Weather by Amy T Falcone, but she's ending it really soon, and she's going to be revamping it to be a different thing soon. She's going to do a Kickstarter for that. Oh, good. Yeah, that, that's going to be launching like I don't I don't know maybe in, soon. Soon, depending on when this podcast goes up. Well, I'll I'll
0: link those all in the show notes too. Well, it's interesting to know, I mean, what you read contemporarily. I know it's funny because Dylan is now doing – some of the work on PvP also. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right.
0: It's a, there's that connection there because um, Scott, I think, is is at his back. He's in, had some health issues, I think, and and also an incredible load of work to do. They do a lot of mm-hmm. work And PvP, of course, is connected to Penny Arcade now because they mm-hmm. have a strip they do in common. They do more work together. And your connection with Penny Arcade, which is one of the most popular web comics of all time, is is Strip <laughs> Search. And yeah. well, there seems to be this. Uh, so we'll come. That's kind of at the end of this, like you know career telescope we're looking at but so you started you're obsessed you put comics online you Mm -hmm. uh you're working through college you're you're studying but you thought after college you thought i need to get a real job this cartooning thing wasn't at that point something you thought was a real job
1: yeah i mean i I felt that way in high school when i was looking at colleges i didn't look at this uh, every college i looked at i didn't even bother to check out their art department that's how sure i was that listen art's fun i love it but you know you can't major in, in rollerblading, you can't major <laughs> in being a cartoonist. I mean, and have a career. There's maybe like 5 people that can be professional rollerbladers or professional cartoonists, but that sounds real hard. I got to have a real job that I can count on and get a paycheck and clock in every day and have that stability. So I didn't even look at the art departments uh, of the colleges I applied for. And then, of course, I went to Pitzer College, and I think after my first semester, I just had this realization that I still didn't think I'd be able to make a career of it, but I knew I couldn't go these four years and not spend those four years studying comics. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, Pitzer is very hippy-dippy and encourages you to create your own major if they don't specifically offer what you're looking for. And I don't mean like oh, I want to be a surgeon. I'm going to make my own major in that. It was more like, you know, I want to do comics. Well, what are comics? It's writing and it's art. So I'll do, uh, I put together a curriculum that was half of their English degree and half of their art degree because I did have an art department. It's just, you know, that wasn't like they're super focused. So really, I guess it's kind of like I double majored. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I had these, uh, oh God, what are they called? Advisors. One from the English department and one from the art department. they'd look over my curriculum and they'd check in with me and make sure I wasn't just, like, fucking around. And, yeah, so I, I made my own major in comics. And at the time, I was like, this is a dumb decision. This is not going to help me get a real job. I'm shooting myself in the foot. But I couldn't not do it. I, I had to. Uh, just... I, I just had to.
0: <laughs> it's funny because I think every cartoonist has done a strip at some point in their career about how they realized they were going down the road to rack and ruin by um, by pursuing cartooning, but they had no choice.
1: Yeah, that's that's how I feel. It's like I I can't not do this, and I apologize for those that hate double negatives, but that is the only sentence that works.
0: <laughs> that's double negatives are perfectly acceptable. I think, I think. <laughs> double positives also. Yeah. yeah, but so the, it's, I think it's always a fascinating thing when you figured out your obsession at an early age. I've met, I did some mm-hmm. interviewing for uh, my college at one point at, uh, over a few years for potential students. And you could tell the difference between the people who had not yet found their bliss, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes because their parents were trying to tell them what to do, sometimes because they just, they hadn't seized on something that really drove a passion. And then the other people who you meet throughout life too, not just interviewing for college, but, you know, it's a, interesting to talk to someone at 17 or 18 and see how they're thinking about the future. And it's not necessarily career driven or ambitious or whatever. It's the thing that fires them up. It's the thing that gets mm-hmm. them up in the morning. And you clearly have that It's such a, it's such a young age, I mean, I guess there is that question of, you know, you do worry about can you make a living from this? But yeah. you, so you went from there though, your decision about making a living was you took a, a you know, a quote unquote real job, a day job mm-hmm. with a, with a, a salary or, or hourly or whatever. And mm-hmm. and you're always doing cartoons in this, in your spare time, I'm assuming, while you're yeah. at the day job.
1: Yeah. Uh, sometimes during the same hours as the day job. <laughs> Shh, don't tell. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, so I got a real job. I actually, I worked in, um, I moved to Portland after I graduated in 2006, and I worked at two different animation studios. Although I wasn't doing, like the first one, I didn't do anything remotely artistic. I was just a monkey who was doing grunt work. And then um, the second one again. I wasn't supposed to do anything artistic, but it was such a small studio that everybody would wind up doing everything, and I did wind up doing storyboards and even I learned how to animate in like over a weekend in Flash to to help work on these these commercials that were animated, and that was those were great learning experiences. Although I was also young, I was very early twenties, and oh, I I realized that I don't. Like working for other people mm-hmm. um, I mean, you know how many people do and all but but just being able to make do my own thing exactly how I want it to do works better for me. <laughs> but I always feel like i'm I'm doing this now and it's working now, but that's not a guarantee it'll work tomorrow and so there is always that thing like well, someday I'm gonna have to go work for somebody else again. But I want to do this as long as I possibly can.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's the that's really the question, right? Is like the the period of time we're in in which you can make a living doing this, doing all the varied things you do, and so many people have. Talk to both for the show and just friends and colleagues and people I went into at a party and they say, what do you work on? I tell them about the podcast, it's like, oh, I'm doing, and they tell me some crazy, interesting things, something that never existed before, and they made a business out of it. And I guess our question, I mean, this podcast I'm doing, my the magazine that I'm working on, all these things, the question is, does this is this a fad? Are we a flash in a pan? And there's a thing in which mainstream media and mainstream organizations like seize control of this again or oh, has golly. it be, I hope not <laughs> or I don't, is, it I don't know. is it distributed enough like when you look at Kickstarter what do you see when you when you look at Kickstarter do you see it as I don't have you have you done a Kickstarter campaign yet you, you have no I right? haven't so you have so many friends who have Portland is in a hotbed yeah. of ca- cartooning and Kickstarter and mm-hmm. Kickstarter cartooning and <laughs> when you look at that do you see Kickstarter as like a part of the future or are you worried it's a, a flash in the pan step both. Mm.
1: Uh, I, I do see it as a very effective tool for enabling us, you know, independent people to make our projects happen, to fund it. I mean, they, I, I look at Kickstarter as the pre sale system. You know, when I was, uh, I, I published both of my self published books out of my own pocket and I would take pre orders, which is where, you know, somebody just pre buys it. And then once it's produced then i send it to them. Uh, and Kickstarter i see as it's, it's just a big pre-order system. Although there's all these other little tchotchkes that are supposed to go along with it. That's the one thing i don't like about Kickstarter is that you don't you're not just raising money to produce. I'm going to use a book as an example cuz that's how i think. But you're not just raising money to print your book. You also have to spend that money making all these prints and patches and stickers and tchotchkes and da 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 and like i am not interested in that. When, <laughs> But that's the culture of Kickstarters. You have to have all these little junky items. I mean, I'm sure they're nice, whatever. But when I do my Kickstarter, I don't think this will be popular, but, like, I'm not going to really offer those. Because those things cost money. Those things take up my time. I want to spend my time and my money making the product that I'm Kickstarting. I don't want to have to make little plastic butterflies that clip to your shirt and I I don't know.
0: Do you know what I mean? I well
1: I do. It, but the the
0: trade off is I I think a lot of people I've talked to have also have that same like there's there's the two camps. One is they're trying to provide the broadest possible experience to keep an audience in and they know that the mm-hmm. bigger experiences bring more money. And, you know, there's that distribution of cash. Like if you offer something for a thousand dollars and you get five people doing that, that's worth, you know, five hundred people coming in at the ten dollar level. But then there's that issue, especially if you're making it all yourself. When I talked to um, Jonathan Colton and Greg Pack, who did a Kickstarter for uh, Code Monkey Save World, their comic book derived from Jonathan's songs, and they had that attitude. They said, God, if we do, we're going to kill ourselves if we have too many tchotchkes and things. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to your friend, Matt Borch, also a uh, previous guest on this podcast, uh, Matt did some stretch things about, like, I think he's going to actually fly to a couple places in the country to give talks. I'm thinking that was, because that was one of his levels. But there's also a lot of personalized drawing that he did. And yeah, Mm -hmm. it nearly killed him. He got everything out on time, but he had to do put an enormous amount of time in. But all those things were extra dollars at the top. So I think there's Mm -hmm. that, is a really interesting range of, where you want to put your effort and if you've already got, I don't know. I mean, I think that's, this is the big question is there are plenty of Kickstarters now. I don't think you'll be unpopular where it's like, you can get a digital copy of the book or a print copy or a print copy that's signed. And that's it. Like that's not Mm -hmm. that unusual. Now I think it was because people felt they had to give more because it was this new kind of thing. And you had to entice people into Uh, coming into Kickstarter, but now millions of people have pledged on it and people know Mm -hmm. what it is. You don't have to sell them on the idea as much.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I'm cool doing some extra things, but they would have to be really expensive. You know, like maybe I don't, I I don't actually do commissions anymore because I don't have time to do them. I just. Oh, that's
0: great. Oh, so what now? What's your forms, the backbone of your work then? Is it just the cartooning? Yeah. Oh that's fantastic. I didn't realize. That's fantastic. So you're even further along that curve. Your website makes it sound like you're actually further behind that curve than you are. You're being humble. Oh,
1: oh yeah, <laughs> I haven't I haven't updated my website in um uh, about a year actually. So
0: <laughs> That's another sign of success. If you can If your website is really out of date, it means you're doing really well. Yeah, like the uh, the
1: portfolio on my website, that is at least 3 years out of date. I haven't put up fresh artwork in about 3 years.
0: Let's pause to talk about Optia, an iOS game from one of our sponsors, Bader Studios. Optia is a beautiful and intuitive puzzle game that's about reflecting light. You have a laser and one or more targets on a hexagonal grid. You need to place mirrors on the grid so that when you fire the laser, the beam passes through all the targets. The mechanics in Optia always stay simple— But the complexity increases as you go from level to level to level. There are 100 levels in all in the main campaign, and you have to keep coming up with new solutions as the designers throw in things like one-way mirrors or mirror splits and other kinds of obstacles that make it hard to bend light and bounce it around the corner. You can try a lot of solutions until you reach the one that unlocks that level and lets you move on. After you've solved enough puzzles, a level editor will unlock at no additional cost that lets you create and upload your own levels. You'll have access to a 1,000 levels created by other players, all sorted by difficulty and rating. Optia is just $2.99, and it's a universal app. You buy it once, and you can play it at full resolution on all your iOS devices—iPhone, iPod Touch, iPad. There's no in-app purchases. There are no coin packs to buy. There are no ads. It's just a beautiful, polished, and complete puzzle game. To see screenshots and a demo video, go to optia.co. That's O-P-T-I-A dot C-O. Or search for Optia on the App Store. And now, back to Erica. Man, I think someone should develop a Google algorithm that looks at how frequently Creative people have updated their website and then makes a, a chart of how well they think they're doing. <laughs>
1: they do yeah, I mean, like, I, I update my blog, but I just don't have time to, like, okay, now i got to go update the portfolio, too. You know, it's just sort of like, hey, guys, I did this thing. <laughs> and, in fact, I, I haven't even put up all the commissions that I did do. Like, you know, I did some really pretty things, and I haven't even put up blog posts for those yet. you hire
0: an assistant to help you manage your website now. Of God, course. for That's reals, the next step. for reals.
1: And, like, the Ojoy Sex toy website. That is all my husband. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing I'm doing for Ojoy Sex Toy is drawing the comic um, and writing it. But he also helps me write it. So that's a, that's a tag team effort is the writing.
0: What's his – What now, what is he doing? Full Is he doing full-time or is he now part of your enterprise?
1: He is both of those.
0: Interesting. So um, he's yeah. very, he's, he doesn't sleep as much as he used to.
1: No. He, he works full-time for his job. He's also a freelancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's got a sweet deal with this one company. So, I mean, he's basically – kind of like He's on a he's on retainer with them, so he's basically employed by them. But he's still a freelancer. Do you know what I mean?
0: I do. That's actually a sweet position to be in, as long as you can handle yeah. balance it all. But mm-hmm. you know, I'm so I got ahead of us here too. So we we were talking about you'd gotten you had an actual job, and now mm. we're uh, in the current state. You've got. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead. And, <laughs> no, narr- this is a non-linear narrative. We're talking. It's it's your life. It's how we think about it. Right. Uh, so, but you came from. So uh, at some point, you're saying the recession hit. This also caused obviously yeah. a lot of people to. Uh, to suddenly, I think a ton of people I talked to, you know, Kickstarter arose out of the recession, right? It started in two thousand nine, yeah, yeah. and a lot of people I've talked to, their big career move was, you know, they either their job cut down hours, they lost a job, or all the commissions disappeared, and they mm-hmm. said, "I have to do something to make a living." So now's the time to do something really, you know, disruptive in my life and change. So you, at that point, you went freelance full time at that point because well, you know, not you intentionally, mm-hmm. <laughs> not, um, not purposely.
1: So the recession hit, got laid off, my entire, the entire studio got laid off. And I had a friend who's working at a museum, and she, uh, they wanted to do this children's book to accompany uh, an exhibit they were doing. And she said, Hey, I know a guy, a gal. And and so I got this, my first giant freelance job that that paid $10,000 just fell into my lap only because I knew a guy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that landed in my lap, like, the day after I got laid off, um, which is just, just extreme luck. And, you know, <laughs> thank God, <laughs> thank God. Cause that could have so easily not happened. And at the same time, like I was also looking for real jobs again. Uh, and people always get mad at me when I say real job as opposed to what I'm doing now. But to me, a real job is you show up, you clock in, you do your hours. It's, it's just, it's a jobby job. And to me, that's a real job. What I do is a dream job. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I was looking for more real jobs and I was on unemployment and doing all that. And then, like, after a while, I just, like, I didn't have time to keep looking for these other real jobs that were, you know, like flipping burgers or whatever. And I got off unemployment. Like, I had I I was entitled to take unemployment for a year. Yeah. And about six months in, I just, I stopped taking it because I was... One, I couldn't meet the requirements for it because the requirement is you have to prove that you applied for three jobs that week or whatever number it was. And I d- didn't have time to go look for these shitty jobs that would take an hour bus ride to go get to because I don't have a car. And so I stopped taking unemployment and I just like kept getting these other freelancing jobs that would come my way. And I like I didn't set out for that. That was never my intention. I did not want to be a freelancer. I never wanted to be a freelancer. Is It sounded too dangerous. It sounded too risky. I like stability. I like knowing what I'm supposed to do. At the time, I liked having someone telling me what to do because I, I was a kid. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. But now, uh, I've been doing this since 2008-ish, 2009-ish. Yeah, 2008, I think. And I love it. This is what I like. I like waking up. I like going to my studio and I like working on my projects and doing all my terms. And technically, you can make your own hours, but what that means is I stay until like eleven at night yeah, down yeah. at my studio. <laughs> yeah,
0: being, being a freelancer, you set your own hours. Means you can take vacation whenever you want, and you never take vacation.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> that's
0: um, the that's the trouble. There is no having no some. Some people I know set up office hours for themselves to try to enforce mm-hmm. that, but it's it's a blurry thing. Uh, it, the, the, one of the things that was consistent across this period of of your life. And you talk about it in the final strip in the in the Dara Super Girly Top Secret Comic Diary, and you did that for six years. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating is that it was just after this period of success, where you get into the to your own career, you're able to sustain it on yourself. In 2009, you stopped uh, doing this strip, which you, mm-hmm. which was the first. Um, uh, you're, you're, you're something consistent in your life, and it's mm-hmm. the first book you published on your own from it. I'm curious about that transition because this obviously you had – I mean, for starters, reader, I'll put a link in the show notes. But listeners should know, I mean, this is a very um, – it's very funny but also incredibly self-revelatory work. You you expose everything about yourself in this strip. Not and- really. No, is it still is it all is it automatically? It's very censored, honestly. Like Is it really?
1: Well, I only talked about the things I was comfortable talking about. And Mm -hmm. the things I'm comfortable talking about are, you know, tend to be a bit more risque than what other people would publicly talk about. But no, it's it's very censored and people don't realize it because they're like, Oh man, she's talking about dicks. Oh man, she's talking about sexuality. It's like, yeah, I wasn't talking about cutting my mom out of my life. I wasn't Mm -hmm. talking about my crippling depression, you know, I, I wasn't talking about my severe anxiety and And losing friendships, like that stuff is not in there. I mean, I did talk about depression in the very, very beginning, mm-hmm. but I quickly learned that like that doesn't make good reading. so oh, that's interesting. interesting um it's it's very censored to be honest.
0: It's funny because oh, no, that's that's a very interesting uh, uh, thing to say because it doesn't come across that way. It comes across as very frank. Well, I mean, I'm starting. You it know, is starting frank. At, I'm starting <laughs> at the end, so your last strip. I, it seems like you were much more confessional in that one than perhaps the earlier ones because you're at the end of it. You didn't have to readdress what was in it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that very final strip. I did talk about periods of depression, but if you read. The entire thing, like those periods of depression, are not covered at the time. I only mm-hmm. covered them well after the fact, and it was just like a single panel saying, "I got depressed again." Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. It wasn't talking about the wheres and the whys and the hows and the what I did.
0: But you, the I think it's fun to go through the history here too, though, and see the evolution of your style. I'm always interested in how Ooh. cartoonists evolve their style from you know one kind of thing i mean like penny arcade is a great example is those guys really couldn't draw and they start i mean <laughs> he, he couldn't draw and they could barely write when they started with but they had some a compelling idea and now it's like uh, between the two of them are an incredible team and mm-hmm. i mean i think they're more pronounced there's a lot of other cartoonists where they start and they have a style and it's distinct which is true for you you had a distinct style and it's very different now i think than yes. what was then but it was certainly you wouldn't say you know this this woman doesn't know how to draw you'd say this is one style and it's evolved into something else but I think it's, it's, when you see that, you see how. People have mat- uh, are maturing over their career as opposed to, um, I don't know. I mean, there are a few artists. You see, the, they start with some incredible, like almost Picasso-like talent. <laughs> they start at the beginning of their career, they draw perfectly. Every line is exactly what they want. And over time, it doesn't change that much because they started with this singular vision of drawing. And I don't know. I'm, I, I just think the transition as your life changed, obviously, the more you did of the strip, the more you refined what you wanted to say in, in the style you wanted to say it in.
1: Yeah, um, I guess the only thing I disagree with is that I look at my early stuff and I do think this person didn't know how to draw, but...
0: <laughs> well, that's funny, now, you know, see, that, but that's, it's, it's hard to... It's uh, hearing yourself as we record a podcast. It's hearing yourself on the radio or seeing pictures of yourself. You never quite have the same self-conception, and I think that mm-hmm. applies to to work as well. And uh, so so Dar, you self-published the collection of Dar uh, before the strip ended, right? You have two volumes that are one? Two volumes. Okay. And so that's something people can go and, and take a look at as per your uh, issue of liking to see things that are complete as opposed to day by day. This The strip mm-hmm. is over. People can go and get the volumes. What were you working on that then replaced this for you that made you feel like Dar was at an end and you had a new chapter you were starting? Uh, career. uh
1: well actually no i just kind of i mean i did i before i ended dar several months before i ended dar i i talked to a couple different uh writers that i wanted to team up with and do projects with because i wanted to get as far away from autobio as i possibly could mm. i wanted to do something fictional and i wanted to work with a writer and i just i needed to get away from what i made a name for myself doing um it was just i just had to get away from it but those projects weren't ready to come to fruition by the time I ended. Uh, so I basically unintentionally kind of took a year off from comics and I just focused on painting and making those and, and doing a lot of f- freelance work, I think. And God, I don't know, it was a long time ago. I don't, don't remember, but I just <laughs> I did basically take like a year off. And then my next project was Bucko with Jeff Parker, who's he does a lot of work for Marvel and he wrote the Willow miniseries from Dark Horse. And that aired from 2011 to 2012. And that was my next big project. And then that concluded, because that was always going to be a finite story. And and we did it just as a webcomic. And then when we were getting close to wrapping it up, Dark Horse came to us and said, hey, can we do this as a book? And we we're like, go for it. And that concluded. And I thought my next project was going to be this educational book for teenagers about how to become sexually active safely. Mm-hmm. And that is... That is my great, that's my magnum opus. Like, that's going to be my life's work. And I spent a year, when Bucko ended, working on this manuscript for the first draft of this giant book that I was going to do. And then uh, I got accepted to be on the strip search show. And at that point, like, I'd spent a year cramming away on this. I think I wrote, like, 38,000 words or something. And that's just the first draft. I still have two chapters to go on it. And, it, and strip search happened, so it's like, okay, now's a good time to take a break, because I, I was kind of burning out on it a little bit.
0: Oh, yeah, let's – and the, the strip search was – this is uh, the Penny Arcade folks who, mm-hmm. uh, like I earlier, have one of the most wildly popular webcomics thing. It's this empire of like the uh, events, the packs uh, – um, not conferences. What do you call it? The conventions, conventions. conventions. Now there's multiple of them around the uh, world, and mm-hmm. they have the strip, and they have the other strip they're working on with with Scott of PVP and table tents. Yeah, char- and the charity. Right, they've got so much going on, and uh, and Strip Search was one of the things that they they came up with as a web. I mean, because they'd already shot at that point, if I recall correctly, they had done their own as you know quasi reality TV show about yeah. their own company and how they produce stuff.
1: It's so good. It's one of my favorite shows. It's it's just, mm. it's a great great show.
0: And they have this huge audience of people interested in it. So Strip Search was a extension of that, right? They'd already learned stuff about doing reality TV and mm-hmm. the idea was they were going to do like all these reality competitions. They were going to get a bunch of cartoonists and winnow people down and mm-hmm. and put you through challenges and all that. So you got uh you got accepted into that. Yeah. What was that process like when you were on the show?
1: You know, like at this point It was all so intense that I've kind of, like, blocked it out of my mind a little bit.
0: (laughs) How many weeks were you all together for a certain number of weeks? Two weeks. We Mm -hmm. were were
1: all in Seattle for two weeks, uh, locked in a mansion with no outside connection. Like, I couldn't call my husband. Um, We were cut off. And we were just competing against each other and bonding and having fun but being super stressed out. Because the thing is... None of us knew what kind of TV show this was going to be. Mm-hmm. We all know what reality TV is and how they edit you to make you a villain. And so all of us went in there with the knowledge that, like, I'm probably going to look like a giant jerk on the Internet. This, I mean, I like to think that they won't do that, but, you know, they've got the power. This, And that's what reality TV is. In fact, Penny Arcade, I don't think they were expecting us to be as nice and communal as we all the contestants wound up being i think they were expecting a drama show as well but you know that's not the kind of people that showed up and they chose not to edit it that way so so thank god right (laughs) (laughs) but you know that was a big contributing factor to the stress is that you're on there and you don't know like everything you say you're like can this be interpreted to make me look like a jerk and I know when I went – before I got to that house, I, I told myself like I'm not going to drink any alcohol while I'm in there and I'm not going to say one bad word about another contestant while I'm there. Because wow. I don't I don't want to be the bad guy and I don't want to be that girl that flashes the camera. I mean like I'll do that when I'm not drunk, but I don't want to do that if I've got alcohol in <laughs> me. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Um, so the uh, – so late 2012, December 2012, you spent two weeks doing this and then went you, – so you didn't have any idea of what – You knew what you did, but you had no idea what it was going to come out like.
1: Yeah, I I really didn't know if I was going to be the bad guy of the show.
0: And you didn't want to be the bad guy, clearly. No, I'm some people, some people go into those reality shows. Uh, you know, I watched a few seasons of the one with um, Heidi Klum, the... Uh, oh, Project Runway? Project Runway. And it was interesting. I have a graphic design background. I got, a, I have a degree in art. from. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. So and that's why I work, of course, as a journalist and programmer. And uh, <laughs> so, but it was interesting from that background, I really liked the show because I thought they actually structured it in some ways around what an art education is like. Not the challenge part so much, but that intensity, the collegiality, the having to work with weird materials being set, Mm -hmm. whatever. But um, I noticed in some seasons you had people who decided they were going to be the villain. They were thinking survivor and they come in and kind of want to be the bad guy because they knew they might get attention and be favored and advanced as the bad guy. And other people were like – I'm here to do really good work, and that's why I'm here, and it's going to be fun. It seemed like that was your approach into this.
1: Yeah, I was doing this because I love reality TV. I really enjoy it. Project Runway, America's Next Top Model. I'm really digging The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Oh, it's such trash. (laughs) Teen Mom, 16 and Pregnant. Like, I watch all of that. I love it all. And so, and I have regularly thought, like, oh, man, I wish – well, and Penny Arcade, the series, which is, like, the nicest form of reality TV – And I've always wished that there could be a reality TV show here at Periscope Studio to show people, like, this is what it's like to work in a comic book studio. This is how we problem solve. This is how, you know, this is our sense of humor. Because I think we're a really entertaining munch. And then Penny Arcade's like, hey, we're going to do a reality TV show about cartoonists. And it's like, again, I couldn't not apply. And then also on top of that, like, Robert Koo is legend in the webcomics world, he is this business guy that saw Penny Arcade, um, who was massively popular, but they didn't know shit about business. They like they sold the rights to the Penny Arcade by accident. And they didn't even know they'd done it. Um and, and Robert Koo came in and he was like, I'ma structure a business around this. And now mm-hmm. Penny Arcade is a multimillion dollar company. And so people always say, like, Oh God, I wish I wish I had a Robert Koo, because you know, I know how to I know how to draw. I can manage business. But I it's not my skill and I know that I could be doing a whole lot more if I just had a better sense for business, but I don't. And so I really wanted to meet Robert Koo and ask him, like, what do I do? Can you look at my business and give me just like the most basic advice. Cause I knew even his most basic advice would still be stuff that had never occurred to me. You know what I so
0: mean? You had to ascend the comic webcomic mountain to see the guru. Yeah. And your, your key in was being on the show. So the yeah. show was actually ancillary to that goal. That's great. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I, I wanted to meet Robert Koo. I wanted That's to talk great. with him. That was my incentive. Also, I love reality TV. So it was win win, right? <laughs> <laughs> Only downside is I might be the villain of the internet, <laughs> but uh, but that worked out. And even so though you got,
0: what, you, got mm-hmm. you got eliminated, Uh yeah. I've got a strip I'll link to in the show notes. There's six, there's six contestants eliminated. There were 15 people on the show, right? And uh, 12. But 12. 12. But you also, this was a great group of people. And a lot of them, Mm -hmm. as I recall, have gone on. I followed some links after the competition was over. And um, these are people who are all really, obviously, initially self-motivated. And this has Mm -hmm. been a a jumpstart to everyone to do the next thing even the people I mean, only one person won right but there are 12 people and you all have gone off and done push your careers forward you got all this positive response people are much more aware of who you are Mm -hmm. and you saw what's the potential is when you're put in these incredibly stressful circumstances even though you've already as a cartoonist and someone freelancer you've already been in incredibly stressful deadline circumstances but this is a whole different category oh
1: it's completely different it's completely different
0: but then, So you met with Margaret Koo. You have this strip in which you talk about yeah. meeting with him too. And, and that led to this uh, – another venture you're involved with. I, I wanted to sort of sidebar for a second and talk about – you mentioned Periscope Studio for a minute. A lot of folks I've talked to on the podcast um, work in collaborative environments, and usually it's not like a company structure. Like not there's um, – uh, I don't know. It's not like there's 15 people in a company and you all – like we talked about before, you're not punching a card and getting a paycheck, mm-hmm. uh, even though sometimes there's small companies involved. But I talked to a lot of people who uh, – I don't know this even before I interview them – have a collaborative space. Some of them have started it. Some of them work in like artist loft spaces in which there's tons of people doing interesting things. Um, Max Temkin, the fellow who's uh, one of the movers behind Cards Against Humanity, um, he Mm. starts a new business every time he has a project. Whoever he's working with, interested in working with, they basically start a new company and work together on it. And this kind of collaboration seems to have a really strong overlap with – this disintermediation, this reaching your audience directly thing, and in Periscope Studio, you're part of a group. You joined them in what was it, two thousand eight? Did you come on two thousand nine? Two thousand nine. So you're you've been working in this space for uh, for several years. Tell me how Periscope works in terms of a, like what kind of loose and strong ties do you all have together?
1: Well, uh, so we are all individual self-employed freelancers, and we are all basically pitching in rent to cover for this space together mm-hmm. and we're all separate little islands uh and and you know with our combined rent money that we pay we have enough money to get big fancy centiques and giant oversized scanners and pay for ink and have a music server that we can play music for the whole room and um a refrigerator for our food you know stuff like that um but then if a giant job comes in from a company. Uh, you know, to get, there's some very well-known companies that have come to Periscope and been like, we want you guys to storyboard a commercial for us. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's happened multiple times and at, or, or to do an instruction manual for their employees in comic form instead of written form so that they'll know how to, you know, work at the company. And at that point, whoever is available, you know, people say like, Oh, I'm free. I'm free. I want, I would like a bucket load of money. And then, um, people, somebody is the project leader and delegates for the team and they all work together as a team and then they get paid. Uh, and then of course we all break back down into our little islands again. So it's sort Fantastic. of like, yeah, it's, it's sort of like Voltron, you know, we're all our own individual <laughs> little robot cars, but then if we need to, we join together into the one great big robot, super robot car. It, so it's is- been a while since I watched Transformers.
0: It's a, well, it's a, it's a it, you're an anarchy, right? You're, you're a collaborative that has, uh, because you agree to someone being the project head, there's not a boss who assigns stuff out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because like nobody really wants to be the project head, though. So whoever yeah, is like, yeah. I will take point on this, you're like, oh, thank God.
0: They're the philosopher king. The person who's least wants to serve, they have their <laughs> – you can actually vote people. I'm sorry you don't want to do it, but it's your job now. We all voted. You've got you've to handle no, the billet. We, we
1: can't vote to make somebody do something, but
0: um. – That's the definition of anarchy. There you go. But that, that's fantastic. So you, do you all collaborate on other stuff at times too? So if you're working on something, you go, good God, I need someone to do InDesign work. Hey, mm-hmm. David, you're over there. Can you, you – know, you you're an expert in this would you, and hire that person yeah. to work with you?
1: Yep, yep, that happens all the time. And we um we also have an intern program. Uh so we'll have two interns for 3 months and then every 3 months we get two different new interns. And uh when it comes to projects like that though, we will either pay the current intern or former interns. We'll bring them back in like interns who really showed that they knew what they were doing and we will pay them to come in and like I know like Steve is paying one of our former interns to come in and draw the backgrounds for one for a series he's working on. You know, Steve will just do the figures and then he will kind of roughly show what should happen in the background. And then, then uh, this guy comes in and he, he fills out the backgrounds and they're beautiful. And like that kind of stuff happens all the time Or we, we hire previous interns to come in and do work for us.
0: This sounds like an actual legitimate internship program, too, in which people get valuable life experience and direct work experience. Yeah, you know, I'm always
1: nervous when I say the word intern, because I know today now that means you're exploited for free labor. But here, it's very much an apprenticeship. You know, the interns that we bring in, like each week, somebody sits down with them and gives them a lecture on something that they're an expert in. I always give the one on self-promotion and how to do conventions, but like Dylan does the one on how to uh, read contracts and understand your contract and, you know, like the, the business side of it and talks about how you should be saving one third of all the money you make for your taxes. Cause the tax guy will come. And then, you know, somebody gives an inking lecture and, and, and like, and also like we sit down and we go over their work with them and they're given assignments like, Hey, you know, draw this script for it, it, It's, it, it's very much like an apprenticeship and we're working very much one on one with them. And, and in exchange, they get us coffee. they scan our stuff. but if you have if you do need them to like flat for you or pencil for you, then they get paid. Do you know what I mean?
0: mm-hmm? This is great. Well, that's I think that's the missing piece for a lot of places, right? The internship program is unpaid mm-hmm. or low-paid labor to do scut work. And there sounds yeah. like there's a, there's a bit of scut work, but, you know, scut work is actually valuable if it's in the field in which you're going to work. Like, learning how to scan stuff well is a fantastic skill. It may be boring as hell, <laughs> and but, you know, you do it a thousand times, you get really good at it, and you have people <laughs> who are actually, like – not, pay, you know, not paying you in the sense of like uh, this is your job. You could be fired from it more like, oh, next time make sure and you know straighten it out so you don't have to straighten it later and you get that advice. You come out of there and you've got this skill that otherwise you'd have had to either learn at a job where people weren't that responsive and you're hiding what you know or teach yourself. I mean I think that's the thing like flight hours. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about planes because of the – plane crash recently at the time of it was like you know you put in 10,000 hours in the cockpit because then you know everything about it and there's that whole um the i think the Malcolm Gladwell spread maybe a little inaccurately that whole thing about the number of hours you need to become skilled at something mm-hmm. when you talk about starting to draw comics when you were a teenager mm-hmm. it's if you start as anything as an adult you have such an upward battle to fight where you're learning things that, you know, just require that kind of commitment and effort and anything you've started and have been obsessed with when you're younger. So I think the internship, the thing you talk about there, getting people while they're ostensibly younger too, especially where they can put in, where you are asking them to do something they wouldn't necessarily do repetitively, uh, you know, that's actually a benefit for them too.
1: Well, I don't know if like teaching them how to scan is really that big of a benefit, but I mean, what... The, the benefit comes from we are exchanging our time with them mm-hmm. and we're going over their portfolios and we're telling them how to behave in this business and, and like, that's, that's the valuable part is, is teaching them the stuff that you don't always learn in art school, you know the business side of it, the dealing with, uh, with your clients side of it and like also how to behave uh you know we'll talk about like hey this cartoonist did something that was really horrible don't and you know that's i think that's where the education comes from and and we're you know giving them advice on their comic pages and like oh this layout you should try doing it this way and hey you should try inking like this so that's that's the benefit um not necessarily like hey scan for ten thousand hours and now you'll be a master scanner you know what i mean
0: it's true, but although I, I think there's, it's, there's so many different kinds of knowledge one has to acquire to become proficient in a field and, and some of it is repetitive and some of it is getting the right piece of knowledge at the right time. But yeah, you know, when I was studying graphic design, one of the things we did that was horrible is we used ruling pens, and we had these exercises in which we had to make ruled lines seven, I don't know, seven of them a quarter inch apart until we got them perfect. Mm-hmm. And we learned hand skills that way, and it was horrible, mm-hmm. but we did it. And you know, I don't know if anybody has to do that today, but it gives you a different connection. You're learning how your hand works mm-hmm. and making the connections, building up the um, you know the neural structure of your brain for it. And I think anything that gets you to focus on working on those connections whether it is you know that here's work you have to perform whether it's repetitive or creative where you get the feedback where somebody like you is helping someone figure out what they're doing right and wrong or what direction you want to help push them to do it the way you think is right at least
1: yeah yeah and there's we always have disclaimers like this is just how i do it you know what i mean
0: that's right. You're not ver- You're not going to be prescriptive, given given that you're an anarchy. Anarchies typically don't prescribe to other people <laughs> what to do. So out of Periscopes, so you've been working in this space for a while now and with this great group of collaborators. You've uh, moved now out of needing to do commission work because you're too busy with your own stuff. I found you because of um well we have a bunch of mutual friends because of the Portland scene. I know a bunch of Portland writers and, and cartoonists because of course every like I think fifty percent of the America's cartoonists are in Portland or independent cartoonists are in Portland.
1: <laughs> Basically. So oh yeah, and let me just say I really enjoyed the interview you did with Matt Boards. I, I thought that was a really good one.
0: Matt's a Matt's a good buddy and he's um I mean he's like you, he's had this really interesting, like, it's like struggle battle to figure out, like, he's, you're obsessed with this thing, you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And he's, it's even, I'm not saying that you're, your work is easier to make money from maybe a little bit, but it's more like editorial cartooning is the hardest possible task you could set oh, yeah. yourself oh, out to yeah. in the 2000 time frame, right? Like in Absolutely. 1980, he probably could have gotten a staff job, even with this style, either village voice mm-hmm. style paper or, or a mainstream paper if they wanted someone edgier, but it's like, yeah. yeah, 2003, you can just start as an editorial cartoonist. You poor bastard. But
1: I know, right. <laughs> but he has this
0: wonderful arc. He has a wonderful narrative of his life already is where he's the, the heights he's reached. and, and, Is continuing to, you know, the the point we're at now, I talked about with him, I think this is applicable to you as well, is that there's enough of an audience on the internet willing to pay for certain things now, finally, that you can have a tiny fraction of a really huge audience and it winds up being enough money to do something with.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I didn't give a damn about political comics um, until I found Matt Bores's work, and now it's like, wow, this is really relevant and funny, and you actually have something to say. And <laughs> why why is the Statue of Liberty not crying in the background?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was just reading uh, Kelly today in the Onion. So, the latest venture you have, so this is all of your whole life has culminated in this one thing. No, I'm sorry. I'm trying to create mm-hmm. a false narrative as people who tr- tell stories do. But um, I found you through, uh, I think through Matt, in this new uh, project you have. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, an Ojoy sex toy. And I love it. And I told you, I was embarrassing Thank you in you. email because there's a, one, I think you're a fantastic artist. I really like your work. Aww. And shit. Well, and, uh, and then I realized not long after that that you'd just been in Mac World, at Mac World Magazine, the print edition had uh, I was like why do I know this person like oh wait I recognize that hair and that studio it's so <laughs> world had focused on you as someone using you know digital tools and they were looking at different kinds of um, you know professions mm-hmm. writing and other creative professions music and so forth uh, so suddenly you're everywhere like everywhere I look it's like there's Erica Moen <laughs> everywhere
1: but so, you know what's funny is I never even got a copy of that magazine well, after, I had to ask one of my readers <laughs> to scan it in for me I don't me, think it's online because I was like otherwise I wouldn't get to see it's it it's crazy <laughs>
0: print only feature what decade are we living in and <laughs> uh but so there is the i like i like your art very much. I like the Thank tone you. you take with this, and I think i mean you've been uh, we were talking about the self revelatory stuff earlier in in dar and a lot of your other work is you have a uh interesting and complicated sexual identity that you talk about <laughs> really openly and it's i think there's this openness that I've seen, I mean, especially I grew up in Eugene, Portland is a town like this, you know, Sarah Mark has got this great book that's going to come out about, um, which she's been doing cartoon excerpts of with Matt Bores, in fact, in Cymbalia, mm. Mag about the complexity of modern relationships, like not the binary, you know, man, woman, uh, marriage yeah. thing, but like how complicated it really is in the real world. And I think you expose, again, enough of yourself that it's it. Um, – you, you're presenting yourself very openly and straightforwardly in a way that people don't talk about their own lives. And mm-hmm. I think ojoy sex toy is hilarious because I don't think there's anything else like it where you're just like, these are sex toys. We're not <laughs> smirking or making jokes. I mean, are making jokes in a very funny way, but it's not mm-hmm. this – I don't know, this purient thing. Like, I come back to this. I'm not
1: punching down.
0: Yeah, well, that's right. It's a supportive uh, thing about, you may or may not like this, but here's this thing. There's this issue of purience I keep coming back to where, like, purience is where there's something, like, skanky or slimy or whatever. It's like it's this sort of the back alley sex thing mm-hmm. as opposed to frank acceptance of it. And I think Ojo oh sex toy is, is – Just a totally frank acceptance. Sometimes I look at it and I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if I'm prepared for this, but I think I should be. (laughs) Really? Well, yeah, because I'm I'm a pretty white bread, middle class, Eugene raised guy. So being raised in Eugene means you were experienced. You saw every aspect of everyone's sexuality, even when you didn't want to, because it's Eugene. Yeah. So I get from from that point, but it challenges me a little bit, I think, in a positive way, because it means that I have to, whenever I see something, I go like, oh, I don't know. I have to step back and say, well, what's my reaction to that? Why? You know, is it? Is it – am I channeling what I think a societal reaction is? it is it my superego acting in overdrive? Or is this actually how I feel about something? Like, is it my legitimate reaction? But
1: Oh, well, I'm so surprised because I feel like Ojo sex toy has been pretty tame.
0: It probably – well, that's – you live in Portland, so that's like, – <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it is, but it's always – I think it's the – Like,
1: wait, wait. I'm so curious now. You don't have to include this in the interview, but like, what, what, which comics put you outside your comfort well, let zone? Me say,
0: well, now I have to go back and look through. But it's more the – it's the sense of like the – uh, you know, there's that internal battle. Like, I feel like a pretty open person and a non judgmental person mm-hmm. about everything. Like, I think any con- uh, consenting adults and people being honest with each other mm-hmm. can do whatever they want, right? And, um, as, which makes me, I guess, libertarian in that one area. I think it's the like, libertarian. <laughs> it's like, do what you want as long as no one is harmed and, you know, I'm not going to judge. Mm-hmm. But I think there's times I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually looking at this thing that when I was growing up, I would never see. I would never see the toy or see it discussed. Mm-hmm. And you bring you and the collaborators you have on the strip too. I know it's kind of. I like the fact that you bring in other people to do, to draw or to you interview mm-hmm. and so forth. You'd never see this before. So I have. to I'm confronting the fact that I'm seeing something that is being celebrated or discussed just in an open fashion. That I, I some part of me is like, oh wait, should that actually be shown in public? <laughs> you know, and you and it's like I'm not cons- I'm not conservative, but there's some. You know, I think it is that superego thing. There's the thing that part of you that tries to make that forms opinions based on the context of the society in which you live. And I sometimes find mm-hmm. myself in struggle between those and I have to say, am I reacting to this or am I reacting to what I think my reaction should be? I see, I see. I don't know. I think that's yeah, well, part I mean, of maturity is figuring out the two of the... I mean, I'm in my 40s, and I'm still figuring out the difference between those two things.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, for me, when I was growing up, my, my sex education was very negative, And I'm making the comics that I wish I could have seen when I was young and learning about this stuff. I, I wish I could have had these graphic uh, illustrations. And I don't mean graphic in like, ew. I mean, graphic as in like, this is a pictorial of how this works kind of graphic uh, illustrations explaining like this is how these sex toys work this is how this stuff fits into your body this is the dynamics of and mechanics of how this stuff functions and this is why it could possibly feel good for you and so i'm just i'm making the stuff that i needed when i was younger
0: Let's take a break from talking about sex toys to talk about Nighttime Toys, one of this week's sponsors who has a coupon for listeners of the new disruptors. Nighttime Toys has the lowest prices on adult toys, games, and accessories. You can find the things that Erica talks about in this episode at their site, they have discrete shipping and billing, so you won't see their name appear on the box or on your charge card, and there's free shipping for orders of $50 or more, and a flat rate of $3.99 for smaller orders. Now, if you'd like to take advantage of the code they're offering to new Disruptors subscribers, enter Disruptors, and you get 15% off everything on the site through August 16, 2013. Go to NighttimeToys.com N-I-T-E, time toyscom and enter Disruptors. If you like them on facebook or follow them on twitter you can get exclusive offers and they have a sexpert available to chat from 9 a.m to 9 p.m eastern for all your questions about sexual health and toys you don't have to make an uninformed decision about something you want to buy you can just ask a question or get more information about any topic that you need details on that's nighttime toys.com disruptors is the code and now back to erica Well, there's an acceptance that it's okay to actually enjoy yourself and have pleasure. Yeah. Which is such a counter narrative to – Culture. I mean, not all culture, but, you know, the man- mainstream media pushes back against the notion that pleasure is acceptable except in very limited constraints and that mm-hmm. uh, certain kinds of pleasure are, you know, either evil, bad, sinful and so forth. And we're at this mm-hmm. huge cultural divide right now. And I think that this is our coastal thing. Like I'm in Seattle. You're in Portland. Um, you know, I grew up, like I said, I grew up in Eugene. There's um, the Northwest in particular, even with very strong conservative, uh, you know, Eugene was an island in the middle of conservative Oregon, just like Portland is and just like uh, mm-hmm. Seattle largely is, is that there's always forces that are saying uh, you shouldn't actually explore your sexuality. Yeah, you know,
1: and it's sad. I mean it especially applies to, to women um, I because you never hear about dudes who haven't masturbated at the age of 18 and yet – So many girls have not touched themselves down there uh, in their late teens, in their early 20s. I remember when I was in college, my roommate had never masturbated, even though she had a very active sex life with her boyfriend. And I think for a lot of women, it's just like sex is a penis going in your vagina. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And, um, And so with my comic, I'm trying to show, like, hey, guys, you can do a lot. There's there's a lot of stuff you can do, and not everything is going to work for everybody. And and I got a disclaimer: not everybody has a sex drive, and that's totally fine. Like that's natural too. You don't have to be driven by sex. Yeah, that's
0: the new thing, isn't it? Too is I kind of love this: is that sort of the asexual or non-sexual? There's mm-hmm. like coming out for people who are like, you know, I don't really have a sexuality, and I'm I'm fascinated that that's such a um it's so hard for people mm-hmm. in that situation to come out you're like good god how many different things do people have to come out about and this is certainly one I of them I know one. right yeah but it's but yeah. it's fun but it's fun that's the embrace i think the this is always the battle that we're facing in culture right now too is that it's the embrace of that t- you can't be intolerant about tolerance, right? If it intolerant, intolerance <laughs> is always the wrong word because tolerance implies that you're allowing someone else to have behavior that you mm-hmm. acceptance is that you accept that you have one set mm-hmm. in there and the forces of, you know, repression are always trying to define a course that's correct. They're trying to draw a box around something and say, this is the only thing that's acceptable. And everybody else is a, a is deviant and bad. And they need to address the problems they have in themselves. Which is always funny when people talk about, you know, you're you're biased against me, you're bigoted against me because you won't support the fact that I don't think that people of the same gender should uh, marry. I'm like, no, that's the definition <laughs> of bigotry. You are a bigot because you're trying to prevent people from making choices
1: know, rather than enable so people. Funny. You know, it's like
0: uh, there's, I know, there's a conflict there. I think that it's ironic.
1: Uh, it is hilarious and tragic. Tragic, hilarious. But the
0: strip, so the I think so. There is a lot to celebrate in Oi Joy Sex Toy, but there is also this great business side too, right? Is that this is a, this came out of Strip Search as a, something you launched afterwards, mm. and you are taking Robert Coo's advice, and it's a yeah. and um, it's not just a strip; it's actually you've got a commerce component to it as well. Mm-hmm. Was did you think of it that way? Did you want to launch something that was a comic that had? You know that, like a back end side of it, is perfect for this strip. Sorry, a back end side with like a commerce <laughs> engine, that or or a commerce connection with it.
1: Well, I mean, obviously, when you're when you're doing a comic, like you want to make an income from it. But this was the first comic I've had that actually just kind of already had a built-in merchandise section from the get-go. You know, I didn't have to wait for a year to, to collect everything into a book and sell that like I did DAR. It's like, hey, no, this toy I'm reviewing, you can go buy that. And I can actually get a cut of the profit if you click on my affiliate link. <laughs> um, and you've done
0: partnerships with companies, too. So it's not just like Amazon yeah. or, or Good Vibes or whoever. It's you've got people coming and actively get, sending you gear and mm-hmm. offering discounts, too.
1: Yeah. No, I don't think I'll ever have to buy another sex toy. People are just sending them to me. It's nuts. Your recycling bin is going to be
0: fascinating.
1: I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, so so Ojoy Sex Toy is kind of a mutation of my magnum opus book for teenagers about how to become sexually active safely. Because mm-hmm. that book was going to be done in the same style. It's just, it was going to be a focus more on educational aspects as opposed to just like, these are toys. But I'm going to get more sex ed into Ojoy Sex Toy as time goes on. It's just, it's easier to do toy reviews because I can just be like... This fits in like this, and this is what I thought about it. Bam! But education—I got to make sure I get that information right, and like, oh yeah. <laughs> um,
0: well, it's interesting. In the in the magazine recently, uh, the publication that I'm now the editor and publisher of, we did a, mm-hmm. a story about. Um, Lacey Green, who's a sex educator. I love her! Right, so well, I I expect she will be in your strip at some point, in some fashion, because she seems fantastic, and she has that same... I
1: know, right? It's
0: just, it's this embrace of everything, it's not, there's no ooginess, there's no Mm -hmm. smirky, whatever, it's just, this is what life Mm -hmm. is, embrace it. And uh, one of the things that she does is she, even though she's not, well now she is actually affiliated with a couple different groups, including Planned Parenthood, for some of the work she does,
1: Yeah. but when she was
0: independent, even in college, doing these things, she took it very seriously. She did the same thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Is she goes out and uh, she calls experts. She talks to people in the medical mm-hmm. profession. She reads studies. She tries to say even when she's doing this very friendly and open uh, advice about something, you know, uh, you know, finding a G-spot or whatever, she's not just – Coming at it from, here's what I read. It's that she actually tries to fact check what she puts in there. And I think that's. Oh, yeah. She's
1: researching it. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, her stuff is brilliant. In five minutes, she takes all this research and crams it into these easy sound bites that are very digestible and unabrasive. And I, that's actually very much what I'm trying to do with Ojoy Sex Toy as well. I, I'm kind of modeling it after Lacey Green. Oh, that's neat.
0: It's a great – well, it's a great approach and I think this is the 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 part of the maturity of the internet is people think about sex, sexuality and all that and porn is what comes to mind and porn is the great engine of all new media is uh, video rentals. When video rental stories uh, <laughs> came about, the um, right, stores right. came out. That was the I think it was like a third of all rental dollars in the early days of video stores were adult videos because people didn't have access to it. You had to go to a sleazy yeah. movie theater. And The same thing, like mm-hmm. sex toys, like people probably bought them, I mean, I live in the Seattle, so we have Toys in Bayland or just Bayland. I guess they call themselves just now. Bayland. Oh yeah. Island, I, yeah. Like, the, I guess the old name was, it was confusing or something. But I,
1: I still call it Toys in Bayland. But they're wonderful. <laughs> they have the
0: same thing. It's just this embrace of everything. The store is wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's well lit. Big windows in the front. But
1: before Babeland,
0: mm-hmm. where do you go get sex toys? Again, it's like and it's all this weird stuff for strange mail order and you feel mm-hmm. weird about it. And now it's like, no, no, you just go on the Internet. There's 50 stores that offer it and you can do a strip mm-hmm. that talks about it openly and just mm-hmm. explains, you know, what why you might be interested in this or how this fits in and of course as we know the truth is a large percentage of people use sex toys yeah. but they don't want to talk about it because yeah. it's one of those taboo subjects that hasn't been broken down yet. so you provide a tool for people hey mm-hmm. i i passed the url around to a few people i know oh, it, yeah? Uh, after yeah after i got it and they were like oh this is wonderful it wasn't like a why are you saying this to me i mean i picked the right people <laughs> but i was like you were gonna love this site and they're like this is fantastic
1: Yeah, well, I'm trying to make it very approachable to people who may not already be sex toy crazy. I'm trying to make it very friendly. And, like, there's little jokes in there that you can laugh, read and laugh, and and you're laughing with the comic. You're not laughing at anyone necessarily. And I'm also trying to show that, like, I'm married. I I have a husband, a partner, and together we use sex toys. Because there's this, this conception about... Well, you know, if, if you've got a partner, then you guys need to just pleasure each other. And it's all about, you know, just that penis going in that vagina, and, and that's, that's it. And if you have to bring a toy in, well, like, something's wrong. And it's like, no, like, you're, the way you make each other feel sexually uh, is limitless. And... There's more than just your body parts going against each other. You can put include this vibrating thing. You can put this thing in your butt while you fuck your partner, and like it's really fun. And in, as long as you guys are uh, making each other feel good, and if it's helping you guys have orgasms, like why on earth would that be considered like a second place prize? That that that's the gold ribbon. That is the prize. You're winning. You know what I mean? It's-
0: it's still I think there's I think there's that it's that voice inside, you know, and a lot of folks I've talked to who come from uh, Lacey Green is a good example in the interview, too. Is she comes from a Mormon background is mm-hmm. people who I think have embraced openness, not most fully, but but a number of people. Have a background in which they had to overcome, they had to get through yeah. the repression that they were mm-hmm. raised and taught to deal with. But when they come out the other side, they're like, "Oh, I don't need any of that. I don't need any of that mm-hmm. repression at all because it doesn't affect my life." And, you know, this gets tied up, of course, with religion and and people ordering other people around and laws. in mm-hmm. a lot of countries are very lucky in the United States as we continue to march forward in many directions, even if there's a retrograde action at the same time. But yeah, it's uh, I, I like the embrace of, of of everything. But you know, there's a, the flip side is there. There's, I think, a debate between pleasure and hedonism, right, is that some some <laughs> people will define any pursuit of pleasure, no matter in, under what context it is, as hedonism, and others won't. And I mean, hedonism, maybe by definition, is like the heedless pursuit of pleasure without anything else. You don't care about relationships or people or whatever. It's bodies and parts and toys and whatever. You're not pushing that message at all. You're pushing this uh, very warm relationship or, or affectionate or partnership-oriented thing.
1: Well, I mean, I'm not... I guess in, in this case, I probably would fall more into the hedonism category because, you know, a lot of people aren't partnered or they don't want to have partnered sex. And it's like, or, you know, maybe oh, but- they just want to have anonymous sex. And, I'm, and like, you know, Ojoy Sex Toy is just a resource. It, you know, here's how the fleshlight works. And if you, you I, I'm, it's just a resource for using toys that would work for you. And I'm cool with it if you don't want a relationship either. I'm not I'm not trying to push relationships. I'm just trying to show that No,
0: oh, no, no. And I don't I shouldn't say yeah, I shouldn't say the relationship part. I mean more like the consequence part. Like hedonism is pleasure oh. without any consequence, no matter who you harm or what's involved. And I think you're uh oh, yeah, no, so you're no, responsible. No, but I'm not saying yeah. people I'm not making a judgment about whether people should have casual hookups or have partners or <laughs> whatever. But I think you push a an underlying message of like the uh, I know you didn't do the rope uh, tying one, but the or the bondage mm-hmm. one, but that is totally full of how to do this so you don't hurt the other person but get enjoyment yeah. out of it. Like that's that, you know, it's not the, yeah, screw the other person. I, tie the knot tight. You know, it's I think yeah, no, all no. of these strips underlie us a, like a, a caring, consent, and participation, yes. which which yes. is not, I would say is not, the you know, the hedonism is seen as this thing. It's always presented by the religious right. Like any pursuit of pleasure <laughs> is you don't care about anybody. There's no rules. We're in this postmodernistic world in which there's no ethics or interests. Like, no, 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 it does not have to be that way.
1: No, And I just want to say that the, the Rope Bondage tutorial comic was by Lucy Bellwood, who is just an incredibly talented lady. I love her comics, and people should go Google Lucy Bellwood and um, read her stuff.
0: It's Well, it's great. I mean, this ties back to that whole collaboration is that this is your venture, but you've brought in other people. I know sometimes when you've been busy or sometimes mm-hmm. just as a guest artist, and it's this is such a new, interesting thing. What is the future of it? Have you given thought to like do you have a do you want to produce books from it? Is there a Kickstarter project in oh, yeah, yeah. the future? What what's the future of it?
1: Oh uh, the answer is yes to everything you just <laughs> good, said. Good. I just launched at the very end of April and I'm gonna give it about a year. So next April I'll have one year's worth of strips and I want to collect those all into a book and I do intend to kickstart it and I'm paying my contributors so they do get paid, so I have the right, a non-exclusive right, to release their work on my website on my syndicated sites because like bitch magazine i have a syndication thing with them and to publish it in my book and then when i kickstart it one of my goals is to earn enough money that i can pay them a better rate than what i'm paying them right now <laughs> oh, that's wonderful
0: That's wonderful. i've got a similar thing in the works for the magazine where i want to do a print edition of this electronic only publication and my goal is to pay contributors mm. more i have non-exclusive rights yeah like you do but non-exclusive yeah, yeah. rights are a uh That's a way to avoid having to sign more contracts to do things, but it shouldn't be a reason to not pay people more when the rising tide floats boats. It's cool.
1: Oh yeah, no, and I I do have contracts written up so that they agree that that this is the non exclusive thing. Good, good. But um, but and you know I I really believe in, in compensating people, and I know I'm paying basically the same rate as some other companies, but it's not much. It's not great. <laughs> I want to pay them more, but I don't have that kind of budget. But yeah, so if they can wait out a year, <laughs> I'll, I'll pay them can more. Can I
0: ask about, I know that you, you probably don't want to give out specific numbers, of course, but are you happy with how it's, you know, you've been in the first few months here. Are you, uh you, so you launched it in May and how has it performed for you? Do you feel like this is a good direction in terms of, you know, both, both ads and some sponsorship like situations mm-hmm. and you've got these affiliate connections. Is it doing what you thought it would do?
1: Uh, it is. I, it is making me an income. Um, I wouldn't say it's an income that I could, you know, just live on necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my husband does work full time and that uh, if he didn't, I don't think I'd be able to do this full time either. If you get what I'm saying, we're looking for a way to make it grow so that it could be a full income.
0: Oh, that's you know what the, I mean? Yeah, the Ojoy sex toy empire. So like Penny Arcade yeah. making video games, you'll obviously have to be making your own sex toys at some point too.
1: <laughs> well, we've talked about that, like buying some at wholesale and selling them in my store, but I'm not I'm not sure. I don't know.
0: You know, 3D printing my, my- and design, you're going <laughs> to wind up kickstarting something that you – Because the thing – it's interesting. You're going to be an expert in this beyond most people who don't work at some place like Babeland. You're going to become – an expert in sex toys at a, just at this, you know, a fundamental level, you will learn what is missing, where the gaps are <laughs> in the sex toy industry. What needs to be created? And I'm, you know, you're laughing, but you know, it's true. It's like in a year you're going to be telling me, yeah, we've well, got this Kickstarter for the, the Erica Moen moan device or whatever. It's going to be something <laughs> that fits that you have not found. There's a, you know, there's a need for, it. you hear from readers, you see the devices.
1: Well, you know, what's funny is I'm actually a very vanilla lady. I, I don't need super fancy things, and like my my staples that I've got, like I've got my Hitachi wand, that's are great. I've got I've got my Android butt plugs, those are awesome. I don't really need much more. Of that. Oh, and I've got my my Vix Skin dildo, like oh love that. Um, and that that kind of covers me. I'm sated with those. So the fact that we're doing these sex toy reviews and they're sending us these crazy things that I would never try, honestly, I would never try them on my own. But it's been sent to me. I got to do a review. And it's forcing me to try new things. Mm-hmm. I don't. It's been fun.
0: Well, and also I know this is the this, this is the collaborator thing though too. Is you have other people who are bringing back information about about specific toys as well, but I, I do think, like, even not from your own experience, you're going to be getting more and more feedback the more this the, the mm-hmm. site grows from readers who are going to say, does anything do this? Or I tried mm. this and I tried this, I don't like that. Is there something that does and you're like, huh, maybe there is a market opportunity.
1: <laughs> my ultimate goal is to have a company contact me and, and have, like, an Erica endorsed with my artwork oh, sex toy. that's even easier. Like, I want my yeah, art yeah. on a sex toy box. Uh, <laughs> that's my ultimate goal. And the like a very reasonable goal. And okay, mind you, I don't actually want this to happen, but I would like to be asked by the fleshlight people <laughs> to to have the Eric moan fleshlight. And I couldn't actually do that. That's a little step too far for me, but I would like to be asked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if asked, I will not serve, but yes, it's always it's always nice to be asked. Uh it's all about consent and being asked, <laughs> as we know. Um well, Erica, thank you for talking about your your Past and your present and the future. Says I think I try to uh, talk to folks who have so much enthusiasm and energy for what they do because I think you've shown how it's not it's not this you know giant uh, wall of adversity to overcome in the sense of you always knew what you wanted to do. I know there's parts of your life that you had to get through and overcome, but you've reached a point here in your career I think where um, you're doing exactly what you want to do. It's yeah. fantastic.
1: I I can't believe I feel like it'll end any minute now. It's just it's too good to be true. You know what I mean?
0: That's what keeps us hungry. <laughs> you gotta gotta keep working at it and always but you've got I mean that's I think again we talked earlier on is that you've got a a number of different things that you can do and that you do do and between Mm -hmm. all of that that gives you the flexibility if things change you're I think prepared for shifts I
1: hope
0: so so. well thanks for being on the podcast
1: oh thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure
0: The New Disruptors is a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent that produces five feature articles every two weeks for two bucks a month. Visit the-magazine.org free to read some previous articles and sign up for a free seven-day trial. Detailed show notes are found at newdisrupt.org, that's N-E-W-D-I-S-R-U-P-T dot O-R-G, where you can also find our back catalog and subscribe to the podcast via our RSS feed in your favorite podcasting application. You can also listen to episodes on the webpage or download them directly. If you have the time, please review us on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. If you have comments, questions, or criticisms, click the contact link on our webpage or email us at nd newdisrupt.org. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.